Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Perry Carpenter one of the hosts of the Digital Folklore Podcast, and this is Digital Folklore Unplugged. Unplugged episodes are where we ditch all of the fancy production and the story elements to bring you the raw or only slightly edited interviews with our folklore experts. On today's episode, my co-host Mason and I got to speak with Ben Radford. Hi, I'm Ben Radford, author of a dozen or so books. I'm a folklorist, a researcher, investigator, and a doer of weird things. In this interview, Ben gives us the lowdown on creepy clowns, media literacy, the influence of folklore, and the psychological aspects of human belief. We touch on how misinformation and panic are spread through viral hoaxes on social media, and we use that example of clown sighting panics as a case study. Ben also discusses his investigations into paranormal phenomena and the experiences and empathy needed for effective investigation. His approach to investigative skepticism emphasizes the necessity for respect and rigorous research. Oh, and our Patreon subscribers not only get early access to this, but also get to hear a super funny story about a clown named Crotchy it was just a little bit too spicy to share in this public feed. So if you want to hear about Crotchy the Clown, head over to Patreon and sign up now. Okay, let's get unplugged. Getting people to talk about like the weird thing they're excited about is always wicked fun and lends itself to like really great stuff. So I would like to prioritize hitting on whatever weird thing that you are like, this is so cool. I collect clothespins, but you probably don't want to hear about that. So um, I actually do because are they all just normal clothespins or are they like, spe- is there like no, a, like a- no, no, they're, they're not. That's what makes them interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll well, I, I don't want to derail this, but no, I, I've got uh, several hundred different types. The most interesting one, it was one from the great depression where uh, it's actually made of a, a soup can that you can tell there's still the writing on it. And so they used to go door to door selling these, these clothespins or clothes pegs. But no, I, I've got, yeah, it's, it's interesting. That's, that's, that's actually what I find most interesting about clothespins is that it's, it's universal, right? Everybody around the world uses clothespins for the most part, maybe not, you know, in, in, in the, the farthest north, because of course you, you put your laundry out and freezes in, in the Arctic. Right. Um, but everywhere else they have the, these, these clothespins and, and for such a simple premise, for such a simple device, you would think that. You know, there's one design, right? Everybody, you know, you, 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 there's a line, these things hold it there. But instead, you find a wide variety. There's, there's ones that are wood, plastic, metal, uh, different designs, different, uh, different springs, different clasps. Uh, so that's what I find interesting is that, is that on the surface, they're, they're just, it's a clothespin or a clothes peg, depending where you are. But when you get into it, you realize that there's actually a whole this variety. And it's weird because like there, there are certain people like they're they're interested in like cars, right? So the, if they're watching a, a historical movie, they're like, oh, check out that 1938. Blah, blah, blah. For me, it's clothespins, right? So if there's if there's a TV or a film and there's a scene where someone's putting out a clothesline, I'm looking at the clothespins like, what kind is that? Do I have one of those? Well, that that's great because it's like the the little stories embedded in these ignored everyday objects, right? That sort of tell where they were from, the time that they were in and everything. Exactly. But anyway. <laughs> are you then like a, a snob wherever you are watching a movie and you see somebody put out uh, clothes on a clothesline from the 1800s and they're using a you know, 1900s <laughs> era clothespin? No, I, I don't get that snobby about it, uh, partly because um, there's actually not that much literature on it. So, you know, mm-hmm. one of the things that I've done in, in my career, in my writing, is to pick topics that are sort of really niche, right? And so... I'm not interested in the Civil War. I'm not interested in NASCAR. I'm not interested in in the Russian Revolution. Uh, and there's a million books on that. If you want to read it, go find it, right? Right. So my interest is in finding aspects of, of culture and pop culture and just the world around us that hasn't been done to death. In fact, is often taken for granted. Nobody, 
no one thinks about, right? Evil clowns and chupacabras and things like that. And so, so that's really what interests me. And so, uh, but one downside to that is that often there's not much on it. So if you, if you look for books on clothespins, uh, last I checked, there were none. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's somebody somewhere, but I mean, it's just, it's just, it's such an ordinary object that people don't think, why is this worth writing about? Uh, and to me, that's exactly why it's worth writing about. So if I, if I had the time, which I don't, um, I would uh, I would devote uh, six or nine months to writing the definitive history of clothespins. But meanwhile, I'm busy with uh, evil clowns. That is <laughs> fascinating in the weirdest way possible. But that's that's really cool. You know, I know a, a, a guy who has similar kind of tangents, but it's all around magic and minimalism. So he'll go write a book just on the history and all the permutations of key magic or like haunted key magic, you know, where it's using right. um, idiomotor movement uh, in your hand to, to turn things. And he'll, you know, he'll, he'll dish like, you know, 200 pages and then get all these other guest contributors and everything else to add routines and stuff to it. And it, it, it comes out as this really interesting thing uh, on a very extremely niche subject. <laughs> Yeah, in fact, I subscribe to Genie, the the magician's magazine. Even though I'm not a magician, don't claim to be. I mean, I, I love the art form. I I catch magicians every time I can. Anytime in Vegas, I want to go see them. I can't do it. I have friends who are, but it, it is interesting, sort of reading that as a non magician. Mm -hmm. You know, I can I can sort of glean you know some some stuff out of it. But yeah, I mean, just you know, there are references to 800 page books on you know some 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 move right, some like some card move or like. Wow, like I, I think I'm a nerd. These are this is a whole other category. So I, I got nothing but respect for that. Yeah, I hear that uh, throughout society, there's there's two huge areas that fill you know library after library, and it's always like a subversive content. It's always like pornography and magic. Fair enough. That makes sense. It, po poking my nose into hyper niche content is my favorite thing too. So like I, I can very much relate to that. Also, my retirement plan now is to open the museum of porn and magic. Thank you, Terry. <laughs> hey, you know what? If you need a board of directors, I'm there. <laughs> All right, well, let me know. pull a rabbit out of. Yeah. Oh, no. Fill in the blank. Okay. Let's um, divert from that. One of the things that I love about you and then love about your work is the, uh, the skeptics angle that you take. I'm interested in like, how do you get into that as a career? And then uh, I do want to talk a little bit about the unique way that you do it, because I think that you have a, a much more approachable tone than some of the other members of the skeptic community and how you become very approachable to people with the different belief systems and some of the things that you're trying to investigate. So first of all, how do you end up giving a career to investigating all this fun stuff that you get to investigate? Yeah, it's a it's a it's an odd story. <laughs> How, how did you end up here? Usually when you hear the words, how did you end up here? It's within the context of like, you know, jail or, you know, the streets or uh, it's not the White House, except in some people's cases. Um, <laughs> in my case, uh, like most people, I was always interested in weird things, right? I was a kid, I was growing up and, you know, I remember being 8, 10, 12 years old and I'm I'm seeing these TV shows and this is before podcast kids. So <laughs> this is how old I am. I, these TV shows and radio shows and movies and things on, you know, mysterious topics, right? There was in search of and, and, you know, and all these sorts of things. And I was fascinated, right? I'm like, oh, this is so cool. You know, there's aliens, you know, landing in, in crops and making circles and they're abducting people. And there's, there's Bigfoot out there and the Loch Ness Monster. And I'm just, and I grew up in this, in, in this tiny, small desert town in New Mexico, which I actually don't live too far from there now. And to me, growing up as a kid, these mysteries seemed very far afield. Like they're all, it's in Scotland. Like, where's Scotland? I don't know. It's like cold. It's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's up there by England, right? I didn't know. And it seemed like all these mysteries that I was hearing all these dramatic sensational stories about were in these far off places. And I was like, oh, I, I kind of, I want to go investigate, right? I want to, I want to go see the, I want to go find Bigfoot. I want to go be captured by aliens, you know, maybe do butt stuff. I don't know, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm open. So I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I'm wanting to sort of get into researching these things. And so I'm buying, so I remember I would, I buy a lot of used books. And so I would get my allowance and I would go to a used bookstore, not far from the elementary school that I went to. And I would, I would come home with just stacks of books under my arms. And these are books on 
UFOs and, and runes and mysteries and psychics and all these sorts of stuff. And I'm just reading these and I'm fascinated by them. And, you know, it's very authoritative, right? Because it's a book and like the person's name is on the cover. Like they wouldn't publish if it weren't true. I mean, because like you, you know, I, I assumed in my in my 10 year old naivete that, well, of course it's true. You know, some publisher it's in, it's printed. Look at that. It's literally printed on the page. So, you know, I had this sort of this sort of aspect to it. So so for for several summers, again, in my early teens, uh, I would read all these books and I was just fascinated by them. And I, I really believed them. I was like, oh, my God, this is this world is so crazy and wild. There's all these sorts of things. But I gradually became disillusioned because I realized that there was very little actual investigation. Most of the books I was reading, like, you know, Stranger Than Science uh, by John Edwards or somebody, they're all, they're all these all these, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s you know, sort of dramatic, sensational pulp uh, books, they all had these, these, you know, these breathless, you know, dramatic, sensational stories. But there was there was very little research, right? It was like, you know, there'd be some story of, you know, two two kids that were snatched out of a uh, off a London street by some tentacle that snatched them off and pulled them into the sewer. I'm like, oh, my God, that's crazy. That like, hold on, hold on. What year was that? What were their names? Who saw this? Because they 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 were never heard again. So somebody must have seen this, right? Yeah. So I'm like, I gradually sort of became more skeptical. I'm like, well, hold on here. It's like there's all these dramatic, sensational stories, but there didn't seem to be anybody that, that was actually investigating them. And you know, when you when I read closer at these books and in 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 the in the TV shows and things like that, it was clear that it was mostly what what I now recognize as folklore. It was stories. It was legends. It was you know. Friend of a friend, right? Who who said this, right? It's you know, it is said that, and I'm like, hold on here, you know, I I I want to know for myself. I don't want to just take someone else's word for it. Some random publisher or some random author who I've never heard of, who I'm being presented as as being factual. So that sort of launched it for me was was sort of the, this turning point in my early teens where I said these are cool mysteries, right? If Bigfoot's out there, if Chupacabra's out there. That didn't emerge until the 90s. But if these things are real, then this is important, right? If psychics can predict the future like Nostradamus and and remote view and see things, this is important. This is interesting. This is this is cool. I want to be part of that. If Bigfoot's out there and all these sorts of things. But if they're not out there, then the question becomes, why are people thinking they're out there? Why? What? 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 What are people mistaking for evidence for these things and it could be hoaxes it could be misinformation could be misunderstandings whatever else and so that sort of led me to a degree in psychology and sort of looking at the different ways in which people you know can misperceive things and misunderstand things and of course there's lots of uh crossover with mentalism and magic and psychology as well uh and then that sort of got me on the path of of uh of doing these sorts of investigations and that that makes sense how you wound up writing a whole book about creepy clowns and getting into creepy clowns, right? Because that is just another one of those phenomena. Yeah, and 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 the the clown one was was kind of interesting because you know I had um, I had written several books before that, uh, including on lake monsters and and mysteries and things like that, and I had actually uh, backburnered it. Uh, I was like, there's a, there's a book, you know, I, re- I recognized that there were lots of people who were interested in clowns, and of course, in pop culture, the the evil clown trope was everywhere, right? Pennywise, the Joker, um, John Wayne Gacy, uh, and you know, just all over the place. The Harlequin figure, Punch and Judy, this and that, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, and yet there was very little actual research done, as far as I could tell, on the on the social and cultural significance of that and the history of it. So that was what surprised me. Is like I'm sure this has been done. I mean, I <laughs> someone else has done this, right? And I looked into it and. I didn't really see, so I, I did a little bit of uh, research on it, and then I basically backburnered it. I was busy. I went and got a master's degree, and then uh, when I circled back, uh, I just published a book, and I circled back to my publisher, uh, UNM Press, and he said, "Okay, well, what's your next book?" And so he's like, "What have you done for me lately?" Like, I just gave you a book. All right, that was twenty minutes ago. <laughs> what have you done for me lately? I'm like, uh, he's like, "What do you have? Do you have any other books?" relentless yeah like i'm like well 10 years ago i started researching a book on on clowns he's like clowns well evil clowns oh okay we can do something with that so i'm like all right so i circled back to it and honestly i was i was sure that in the 10 years when i had set aside this book someone else had done it i I figured i mean i'll 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 circle back to it because of course you know when you're writing a book the first thing you do is look for competing titles right 
You don't want to yeah. redo something that someone else has already done. I certainly don't want to. So I want to do something that's new and fresh. And so, again, I was I was certain that somebody else had already done this book and I didn't need to do it. But the more I looked into it, no, <laughs> Some, well, shit, I guess I'll do it. So that sort of that launched me into the the, uh, the evil clown research. So what was the what was the thing that stood out for you the most in that? Or what was the most interesting, the most shocking, the most frustrating? When you think about that book, like what is the, the thing that you had the most passion about bringing forward? Well, there, there are a couple. Um, you know, one of them was uh, I hadn't really thought about the nature of the clown as trickster. Uh, and, of course, this gets into, you know, folklore and things like that. So, I mean, in, in retrospect, it's kind of obvious. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what that is. Right. But but sort of digging deeper into that, that that hadn't released the, the full dimensions of that really hadn't dawned on me. And also the the different varieties of, of clowns and clowning, uh, and particularly the the the, the, the scarier evil ones. I had hoped to interview some uh, professional clowns for the book. As you might imagine, <laughs> they didn't want to talk to me, uh, and it wasn't because I was being you know obnoxious or trying to rip off the the you know the uh, the the scab of of evil clowns. It was that they understandably. They they didn't want to give any more oxygen or ink to the scary clowns that in some ways many of them felt was were actually harming their profession. And I said, look, I'm you know, I'm not trying to I'm not sensationalizing evil clowns. If anything, I'm doing the opposite. Right. I mean, my book, it's a you know, I, I told them, here's my here's what I've already done. Here's my background and this and that. So, you know, I was not doing a sensational, lurid John Wayne Gacy clowns or evil thing. I was doing quite the opposite. But they like. You know, thanks, but no thanks. So, um, so that I did that, but it was it was interesting, sort of digging into uh, the different varieties. So, for example, you know, I, I mentioned the Harlequin, Mister Punch, and the Punch of Judy shows, and you know, there were the marquee ones like Pennywise, right? Everybody goes to Pennywise, right. everybody goes to Gacy, this and that. But I wanted to sort of take a broader perspective, and so that's why, for example, I have a I have a section uh, on dip clowns. These are carnival clowns you would see at at a, at a, at a midway. Dip clowns, D-I-P? D-I-P clowns, yeah. Not dip clowns, although uh, some of them are, but these are just simple dip clowns. And at first, I wasn't sure whether they would fit or not. I mean, because they're, you know, I I love carnivals. I love midways. I love sideshows. I mean, that's, (laughs) along with magic and other weird stuff, that's my groove. So I was familiar with them, uh, but I... uh, It wasn't really until partway through the book when I realized that they fit perfectly into the evil clown motif because they were often dressed as clowns. And their job is to insult people like that. That's what they do. Hey there, fatty. How's it going? Is that your wife or is that you? Did you bring your bulldozer with you? High and dry, high and dry, high and dry. And and so they would, you know, their their whole job is to piss you off enough to make you, you know, put down five bucks and, and you know, buy some softballs and try to throw them at a target and to dunk them into the tank. And uh, so once I sort of like they, that's actually that's right up in there. Right. So they're clowns, but it, it's a performance. But they're also trying to <laughs> you off because that's the job. Because if they don't <laughs> you off, then no one's buying balls to throw at them. And so when I realized that, so I, uh, I was fortunate enough the next time that the 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 fair came by, came to town, I, I hung around the, the dip clown tank. Uh, and I interviewed uh, a couple of the dip clowns and it was fascinating. Uh, I was not expecting the book was going to go in that direction. But all of a sudden, you know, I'm here talking with this guy who just spent 12 hours in cold water getting dunked up and down. Uh, his throat is raw. He's smoking a cigarette. He he smells faintly of bourbon. And he's telling me about the ball peen hammer that he keeps in the tank to smash anybody that comes after him because this has happened in Texas. So, oh, wow. oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, so there's the dip clowns. And then I also have a, I have a chapter on clown pornography, <laughs> which is a legitimate angle. <laughs> Certainly, I, to be honest, I was expecting the publisher to, to cut that one out. I, I slipped it through, so to speak. So there you go. That's phenomenal. Well, and it's, <laughs> it's funny. I mean, you mentioned the fact that um, a lot of the clowns that you tried to interview as you were calling them up, weren't interested in it because they're afraid of it for some reason. And I don't know if everybody has this experience, but I do as just a cybersecurity guy. I know an inordinate amount of people who were raised by clowns, like literal traveling clowns. Really? Like okay. Or children of traveling clowns. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, huh. one of those is one that, that we met. Um, Mason, you remember uh, Jenna Rose? Uh, yeah. Never caught. Her parents were clowns. 
Actually, yes. she was raised in that lifestyle. Um, I've got another person that I know who is that. And then I've come across like three or four other people in the past couple of decades who, as they were introducing themselves and we were you know, talking about their background, have said, yeah, my parents were clowns. <laughs> and, and they didn't mean it as an insult. You know, right, about their no. parents. It's just their parents, you know, parents' lifestyle and job. Interesting. Yeah, that's wicked cool. You know the coolest people, Perry. This is, uh, this is, yeah. You're just a nexus of cool people. That's what I think about you. <laughs> like you've somehow in your job pulled together all the threads of everything that I've been interested in in my life. Mason, anything else on the uh, the clown bit that you want to dive into? I guess I'm curious if in your research for that, when you were looking at the more contemporary stories of bad or creepy clowns, if you had one that is your favorite for some reason, whether it's just a particularly creepy one or if it's just really dumb, but like a story from when they resurged at some point in popular media. Oh, that's a good question. You know, it's interesting. You know, I was often asked uh, when clowns went bad, right? Because there was this notion that, you know, clowns were good. And then Stephen King and then the, the Chioda brothers with Killer Clowns from Outer Space and this and that, that at some point there was this cultural event or this Thanos snap finger. I don't know. <laughs> there was a time when clowns suddenly turned evil. And uh, and and that was one thing that that, that I, I at first believed. I, I assumed that, yeah, it's like, when did clowns go bad? And then I sort of realized that it's, you're you're asking the wrong question because clowns clowns were never good. You know, in America, there was this notion that clowns were good because of the influence of, for example, Bozo the Clown, Ronald McDonald. So a whole generation of Americans grew up with ostensibly happy, good burger pushing like the the rodeo clown type yeah thing too, yeah, yeah there exactly. for comic relief yeah yeah so 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 it was it was against that background that that evil clowns sort of came out and so you know when when stephen king you know came up with pennywise he wasn't doing this subversive thing like oh clowns are good now they're bad. It's like you know if you if you look at clowns elsewhere for example in europe clowns were always this ambiguous character so they in many places around the world they never had this assumption that many Americans did that clowns were inherently good. They're like, yeah, <laughs> clowns are, they're like fairies, right? Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. You don't mess with them and this and that. So that sort of answers, that sort of touches on your question is to yeah. sort of like the, 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 the bad or the evil clowns, right? And so, you know, when, when, when you're looking at it, you know, the, the number of, of actual evil or scary clowns, if you're talking about, People who are clowns, that is professional, actual clowns, the number of, of evil ones of those is vanishingly small. I mean, I, I found three or four examples over the years of somebody who, who killed people uh, or in one cases, uh, molestation, things like that. And of course, the one everybody goes to is John Wayne Gacy, although Gacy's connection to clowning, <laughs> despite every lurid uh, you know, film uh, cover and video cover, is, is tangential at best. He was not a professional clown. He was, in fact, a, a building contractor by trade. He, he did kill, uh, they believe, over a dozen uh, young men, but not in clown costume or anything else. It was just he, he did perform as a clown occasionally, but that wasn't his thing. But of course, not only he, in his later years after he was arrested, he, he built up his own legend of the, the killer clown. He reveled in it. So part of the reason that people today associate John Wayne Gacy with the killer clown is they're buying into his bluster and his self-aggrandizement of the killer clown. Whereas, again, reality, it was his, connect, his connection was tangential at best. I would say probably one of the more interesting sort of evil clowns that I came across was the Northampton clown. And we can talk more about that later. But he basically spawned the, the scary clown panic of 2016. In uh, Northampton, Mass, right? No, Northampton, England. Northampton, England. Yes. More of our interview with Ben Radford. After this. Hey, listeners, if you're like me and enjoy escaping to a real movie theater, then Regal Unlimited just makes sense. It's the all you can watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. You can see any standard 2D movie anytime with no blackout dates or restrictions. And your membership lets you get into premium format shows like IMAX and 4DX at a reduced cost. Plus, you'll save 10% on all non-alcoholic concessions. Regal Unlimited. It's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. So, if you're planning on seeing a couple movies this month, 
Join Regal Unlimited. Now is the best time as summer's coming up. Sign up now in the Regal app or on the website at regmovies.com slash unlimited. And be sure to use the code FOLKLORE24 to get 10% off a three-month subscription. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Welcome back. We did have the recent clown panic, the one that everybody's thinking about with the creepy clown standing around, just making people unsettled. Tell us a little bit about the story of that. And then you do mention this trickster angle, I'm sure from your psychology background, you're thinking just some of the psychology of creepiness and uncanniness. But what made that become the thing that it did as it became this new panic? Well, yeah, there were, there were a couple things going on. Um, so uh, basically, the topics that I cover in the book, it's one of the last chapters, is, is what are called phantom clowns. And these are evil clowns that are, and again, this, this goes right into folklore because it, it's, it's essentially a folkloric phenomena, but it bled over and bleeds over into mass media and things like that. So the phantom clowns actually begin in the, in the 1980s. Uh, and you know, there's, there's a whole... I, we could talk for a couple hours on this. I'll try and sort of give you the overview. But basically, in the early 80s, um, there were reports of scary clowns driving around trying to abduct children. So uh, either by, by themselves or sometimes in white vans, because, of course, vans are a popular folkloric motif. And uh, as you might imagine, this panicked teachers and parents because, oh, my God, right, there's somebody trying to abduct kids and not only that, but they're also clowns. So there, there's that added layer of Oh, and by the way, they're clowns, mm -hmm. which if you think about it as a practical matter, you know, if you're trying to go unnoticed and you're trying to do something and get away, the last thing you would want to draw you drop as a, as a clown, right? That, that clowns stand out unless you're in a circus, <laughs> even even in a circus. So just as a practical matter, if if you're trying to get away with some crime for the most part, and there are exceptions and I'll talk about that. A little bit later, but if you're trying to duck kid, that that's not a that's not a realistic thing to do. Anyway, uh, there was all this panic, as you might imagine, and parents and everyone's freaking out. So they called the police. The police investigated. No sign of the clowns. Like just there's nothing there. No witnesses. No anything else like that. And yet the the kids kept uh, telling these stories, and they kept saying, you know, uh, a week later, and the the stories actually spread from place to place, you know, in typical folkloric fashion. And um, over the course of several months, and in fact, several years between 81 and like 84, 85, these sporadic ports of these these clowns. But again, there was never any evidence of them. None were ever arrested. There was never any evidence. There was, no, for the most part, adults didn't see them. These were stories and rumors that circulated among children and from children to the parents and teachers. So uh, Lauren Coleman, uh, in his book, Mysterious America, uh, was, is credited for, for being the first to write about these, these uh, phantom clowns. And there were later re reoccurrences. For example, there was some in Honduras and England and elsewhere. So the, the, the phantom clown panic sort of, as, as usual, they emerged, they reached a peak, and they sort of faded away, often around Halloween, uh, which, which probably won't, won't surprise you. In any event, so that's the history of these clowns. And as a folklorist and someone who's written about these sorts of weird things, I, I knew that typically around Halloween, there would be these, these panics, right? These moral panics. There's ones about tainted Halloween candy, which Joel Best has written about and others as well. You know, the Halloween sadist uh, legends and things like that. And this sort of tied in with, with that. And it wasn't really until uh, 2013 when, when that blended with social media. And you had uh, what was called the Northampton Clown. There was a guy in Northampton, England, who dressed as a clown and 
he didn't, it's interesting. He didn't threaten anyone. He was intentionally creepy though, right? So he would stand uh, sort of waving to people silently as they drove by on the streets, right? Usually at night or in, uh, or in parks. Again, he wasn't threatening anybody. He didn't have any weapons, but so, but it, there was this sort of, the, it was just intriguing enough to go viral, which is exactly what he was expecting and exactly what happened. So sure enough, uh, the Northampton clown had its own hashtag, people reporting seeing the clown, dating photographs of them, sometimes with him, but nobody knew who he was. He would just sort of appear, you know, late at night and do these sorts of things and, you know, hand out balloons now and then and sort of throw it away. It later turned out, because uh, as, as I'm sure you know, England is full of security cameras. There are more security cameras in England than anywhere else in the world, as far as I know. So it's harder to get away with that sort of thing in the UK. And sure enough, people eventually tracked him down. But it wasn't the police, because keep in mind that dressing as a clown isn't illegal. So even though he was sort of unnerving people and making people wonder what's going on, this and that, he wasn't doing anything illegal. So you, they call the cops. They're like, what do you want me to do? <laughs> which which law? Right. What what do you want me to do? So I think he was sort of more seen as a, as a local celebrity. Uh, probably in some cases, a local nuisance. Anyway, it turned out that it was, in fact, a, uh, a local um, young filmmaker who was, you know, trying to sort of get get some publicity. And uh, they actually spawned copycats. There was another case in the Staten Island, in the Staten Island clown. Uh, there was a case of a year or two later where, once again, you had a an evil clown that was seen in Staten Island. Again, not threatening anybody, but just you know, clowns out of their context are inherently creepy. And I can talk more about that later. So they were expecting it to go viral. And sure enough, it did. And once again, this was also a publicity stunt for a uh, for, for a, 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 a local um, a local filmmaker. So for the most part, the scary phantom clowns sort of faded away, like the real life ones. I'm not talking about the Joker and Pennywise. I'm talking about sort of real life viral video, actually somebody in a clown costume, although not necessarily clowns. It's important to make that distinction. Just because you buy a clown mask doesn't make you a clown, which is a point that many clowns pointed out to me. Like, just so we're crystal clear, right? Buying a, you know, buying a mask doesn't make you a clown. That, yeah, that's fair. I can see how they'd want to protect that. Yeah, yeah. Like, because, I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole honorable tradition and, you know, you know, makeup and designs. I mean, there's a whole clown industry and, and, and subculture that I, I, I I respect. I don't, it's not, that that wasn't the particular angle that I took for my book, but I I'm aware of it and I respect it. I know lots of people who have been to clown camps to to be educated on on clown skills and you know all the all the apprenticeship type stuff. It's not as easy as you might look. Yeah, exactly. It's it is a form of art that takes a lot of discipline to do it well. Exactly. So against this background, we have the 2016 Phantom Clown Panic. And it was odd because uh, my book had actually been published, I think, in March of that year. And then around Halloween was when this clown panic, just shortly before Halloween is when this clown panic emerged. And I actually had people who were like, so, Ben, where were you the other night? Because there was an evil clown who was like, were you behind that? I'm like, no, this is not a publicity stunt. I could have predicted it just because I researched it. But I mean, I I wasn't behind it just, just for the record. I had nothing to do with it other than trying to explain it to people. But uh, the I'll, I'll try again. It's it's a complex topic, and there's lots of lots of aspects. So I'll try and summarize it here. But basically, in August uh, 2016, in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, there were reports of children uh, once again that were almost being abducted, not being abducted, but almost being abducted by clowns. And most of the reports were from children, just as we saw in previous years and even back in the 80s uh, in Massachusetts and elsewhere. And when the, the adults were asking about well, what happened, they would say the kids would say that there was uh, there were clowns living in the woods behind these apartment buildings. This is more urban than you might expect. And yet behind this one apartment building, there were a copse of woods. Uh, and so the story went, if you followed a trail into the woods and <laughs> Hansel and Gretel uh, uh, motifs were coming out, you would finally find not a house of candy, but a house of clowns, where allegedly a bunch of clowns lived together in some sort of clown commune who they were sitting around waiting for children to abduct. Again, this is this is straight out of Stephen King, right? Stephen King in, in fairy tales. And once again, as with the previous uh, Phantom Clown panics, there was never any evidence of this. Of just kids are kids are saying this. Every now and then you you have an adult who would say, 
you know, I saw something in the woods, right? Because once you tell people to look for anything weird, whether it's Bigfoot or UFOs for us, they're going to see it because they've been psychologically primed, right? And so when these rumors circulate in this community and everyone's talking about it, because why wouldn't you, right? Child abductions folded in with, with, with scary clowns. So every now and then there would, there would also be a parent who would say, yeah, I saw something, you know, it was in the woods. And, and at one point they were actually firing weapons or firing, firing guns and, and bullets into the, into the woods. Fortunately, nobody was hurt, but this was taken pretty seriously. And so this happened. Uh, and, and again, I'm following this in real time, right? So it was, it was fascinating to me having written bad clowns and having done research on this. So I would wake up in the morning with a Google alert <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm just like every morning I'd wake up like, what what weird clown it's going on today? And sure enough, so exactly as happened previous years, the sightings you know spread and spread and spread. Um, so it wasn't just in in uh, in South Carolina; it went to other cities in Atlanta, uh, Michigan. It just this this sort of snowballing effect. And what what began to happen was that even though there were never any clowns or anyone else arrested or or identified in in the original case. Other people would see these news stories and they would dress up as clowns and and basically do copycat hoaxes. Ostention. Yeah, ostention, exactly. So people would, they'd see on the news like, oh, did you hear about these crazy clowns? Yeah, that's crazy. Like, hey, I got a, I got a clown mask in my closet. You want, you want to go cruise Walmart and scare some old ladies? Yeah, let's do it. I was really expecting and fearful that a lot of that would turn into clown just being shot. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the concerns, right? Because, you know, with ostension, anytime you're acting on a legend, there's the chance that someone's actually going to get hurt. Look, if you're acting out Bloody Mary, you know, <laughs> go in your bathroom, light a candle, say Bloody Mary 13 times or 100 times, take your pick. The chance of Bloody Mary actually coming and harming you are close to zero. However, if you're dressing as a clown, whether or not you have bad intentions and you're, and you're running after kids in a park, they're going to get you killed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not the wisest move in the world. Yeah, this is that right. Exactly. So but you had this fascinating blend of. So in the 2016 clown panic, uh, you had some hoaxes, right? You had people who were who were basically faking clown sightings. So you would have people who would say, yeah, I saw an evil clown. A clown knocked on my window at midnight and ran away. And people would investigate, and that didn't happen. They, they later admitted it didn't happen. There was uh, one woman I remember I wrote about who was late for her job at McDonald's, ironically. And the reason she was late, she said, was that a clown, as she was getting into her car, a scary clown came at her with a knife. Fortunately, she was able to fight him off, but it made her you know, 20 minutes late for work. She later admitted this, <laughs> this was, of course, a, a, a hoax. So, so there were... There were hoaxes, people who were faking not only clown sightings, again, just a flat out hoax. They later admitted they made the whole thing up. But then you also had copycats. So you had people where they would hear about these stories. And again, they would they would perform it. They would you know, like, hey, everyone's making the news. It's a low risk, high, high yield prank. Right. Because if you're successful, you make national news. Right. You got right. you got John Muir. On ABC News talking about you or CNN, right? Yeah. There's a clip of you. If you're in trouble, you're arrested. Okay, 17-year-old in a clown mask. What are you going to do with me? All right. So, and, and then you also that also morphed into, for example, viral videos. And so there were actually uh, what were called clown lockdowns. So in Alabama, for example, and other places as well, schools were actually locked down. And what would happen is that uh, that people dressed as clowns, typically students which won't come as a surprise to anybody who went to high school. They're like, I don't want to go to math class today. Hey, I have an idea. So they would they would put on a clown mask or do a little clown thing, and they would put something on, on TikTok or Instagram or, or any social media. It's like, hey, you know, I'm going to come shoot up the school. I wouldn't open the school on Monday. And it's interesting, right? Because the police have to take that seriously. Because unfortunately, in America, there are school shootings, right? So it, it's an, it's, they're just dovetailing onto this phenomenon. So there was this interesting dynamic where the police couldn't ignore the threat because technically it's a threat against the school. If you are in charge of protecting school security and you ignore a threat against the school and it happens, you lose your job. You are public enemy number one. On the other hand, you could be 99.7% sure this is bullshit. So there was this, this tension. And so what would happen is that the schools would be concerned about it again probably often recognizing that there wasn't a truth to it, but they got to be better safe than sorry. The police take the same tack. And then what happens is that 
parents who might otherwise think this is all silly, it's legitimized by the police and by, by the schools because yeah. they're like, you know, I didn't think this was true. You know, this all seems silly to me. But, you know, my I got an email from from the from the school saying that they're shutting down the school. Oh, my God, there must be something to it. So this sort of self-legitimizing aspect of the whole clown phenomena. Anyway, so that that was sort of that that launched uh, that went again from about August or September and it sort of rose right around Halloween, then sort of peaked by by November, and then it sort of faded away. So that was that was the the, the basics of the the 2016 uh, scary clown panic. And then with the national news coverage that that was getting and being beamed into every household, I'm sure there's a piece we can talk to about uh, media literacy and when it's received by people, you know, and how that spreads through that. There, yeah, I, I'd be interested to get get your take on talking about media literacy through the lens of using this as a jumping off point. Yeah, yeah. And I've, I've written a couple of books on media literacy, including uh, Media Myth Makers and to some extent, my latest book, America the Fearful. But yeah, it's fascinating because, you know, on on one hand, you know, you, you really see and, and this also, of course, folds right into folklore. You see the role that social media plays in spreading misinformation and, of course, all information, but particularly misinformation. There's been many studies that have shown that misinformation is is greatly amplified uh, on, on, for example, uh, YouTube algorithms. For example, you know, if you start going down a, a hole of conspiracy theories, hey, would you also like to see this video, this other crackpot? Sure right. you would. Yeah. Hey, you want to go a little further down? Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Algorithm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the algorithms don't point you to a skeptical, sober point of view. They point you to even more wild or crazy, you know, bullshit. And so there's this aspect of, of media literacy where you, you try and encourage people to, to, you know, do critical thinking and try to, you know, parse out, okay, what's the message? Who is telling you this? What's their motivation behind it? And what sort of consequences are there, right? So if you if you believe some false factoid of whatever it is, it may or may not harm you. If, on the other hand, you believe some false factoid about, for example, QAnon or uh, Comet Ping Pong, you know, the guy that, you know, he heard this this conspiracy rumor that there were children being trafficked and held in this basement at, at this uh, pizza joint in, in Washington, D.C. And based upon this 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 rumor, he went in there with a gun to liberate these children. Turns out that the whole thing was completely, uh, completely false. In fact, the, the the place doesn't even have a basement. Again, but this is all you know, QAnon politically motivated stuff. But it highlights the the re very real dangers that that can emerge from these sorts of things. I'm curious. I don't have any uh, hard facts and data on hand, but I'm curious if you have uh, in your research come across anything to talk to the point of generational differences when it comes to media literacy. It's kind of a meme to say, you know, for people in my, like my age, our parents were like, "Don't trust anyone on the internet. Everyone on the internet is a stranger." And then ten years later, they're the ones who are on all these scam groups and like losing all their money and falling down these conspiracy holes. And I don't know if it's like an accessibility and technology level thing, because, you know, if you didn't grow up with the internet and you're unfamiliar with it or or, or what, but there definitely seems to be a genera generational difference in terms of how media literacy is handled. I don't know if, if you have any insight into that. Yeah, it is interesting because, you know, on one hand, you would expect the opposite, right? I mean, ostensibly, older people are wiser, right? Right. You, you've been around for 75, 80 years. You've seen more than I have, and I'm 30, so, you know. Right. So, so I, but, but, you know, what you find is that, so th there's, there's a couple of different dynamics. One of them is that, is, you know, as you sort of touched on familiarity with, with the medium. And, you know, you have people who, you know, older folks who, they're not stupid. They just, they, they don't know how to, they don't know how to access the, the apps and things like that that other people take for granted. And again, it's not because they're stupid. It's just they didn't grow up with that. I mean, they, they can learn it, but they're like, why, I don't, I don't have any use for this, you know. So, so that's part of it. And, and I think the other part of it is, of course, that, that uh, these sorts of things are getting more and more sophisticated. So as you guys know, uh, you know, even in, in recent months, there's been AI cloned voices, right? So there's the there's a scam about a daughter being abducted. You know, hey, I'm being held for ransom. Send me some money. And it was not her daughter's voice. It was AI cloned, but it was it was close enough. If somebody who you know is calling you and you hear their voice, of course, you're going to think it's them. I mean, I, yeah, yeah. It's that's, you know, it's the old story about if you hear hoofbeats, you think horses, not zebras. Well, in this case, it, it's perfectly rational and reasonable to assume that you're talking to a real person. So part of it is 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 that sophistication as well. Uh, just just one little uh, a footnote on that is, is I'm thinking about this in a, 
less of the more sophisticated stuff, which is like terrifying because it could fool anybody. But in terms of like the general presentation of information on the internet, I don't know if it's like a navigation thing or part of sponsored posts and advertising or. Yeah, that, that's that's Perry's purview. After the break, the conclusion of our interview with Ben Radford. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. The thing that I was thinking there, from a psychology angle, there's like a a huge framing effect that comes with that, right? Because an older person has been conditioned to understand what legitimate news looks like. There's a Chiron on the bottom. There's, you know, a a set in the background. It's Walter Cronkite. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's the person at the desk. And now there's tons of, you know, illegitimate misinformation, disinformation news that comes looking very polished and legit, sometimes even more polished than somebody's local news station. So you've got that framing effect at play. You already mentioned hoofbeats type of thing. If, if I'm picking up the phone, I don't associate that as a technology interaction. Right. I associate that with a, as a, an analog interaction. Right. And now you put something that's plausibly my niece or granddaughter or even daughter's voice, and you add a little bit of line noise to that. And, you know, the believability factor goes up you know, exponentially. So I think in a lot of ways, it's hard to make these categorical statements about older people are better or worse or younger people are better or worse. It just depends on where the psychology-based trigger points are going to lie. That totally makes sense because, I mean, there are there are loads of people of all ages that are uh, very embedded in different forms of disinformation. I guess what makes me curious is what lowers the believability threshold in people because there's some stuff that you see and you're like, this is so obviously horse and yet people are buying into it 100 percent it's kind of like the creepy clowns thing and as like you mentioned it gets legitimized by the police response and school responses and things like that but in the first place for it not to be dismissed i, I think it's interesting what makes that bar move it is it, i mean that's that honestly that's a topic for a whole other show so. yeah. yeah and there are entire scams built around that type of thing it's let me put something that has very low plausibility out to millions of people and the group of people that grabs onto that first, now I can narrow in and exploit them even, even further. I can take them a lot farther down. Uh, there's yeah, lots of very sophisticated scams built around that kind of plausibility bar. How do we combat the erosion of someone's believability threshold for someone who's you know starting down a rabbit hole? These algorithms are encouraging it and they're, and they're falling further and further into something. How do we how do we fight that? How do we improve media literacy broadly? Yeah, well, that's, you know, of course, that's a that's a million dollar question. And uh, again, that we could we could do a whole a whole uh, other show on it. But I mean, Fundamentally, one of the one of the things that I always say, and it's 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 trite, but it's true, is is coming back to education. You can't expect people to know things if you don't tell them. And so that's one reason why I've always pressed for critical thinking education to be core uh, topic in schools. Uh, unfortunately, typically, what you find is that schools they sort of hope that critical thinking will happen by osmosis. Right? If we teach history, if we teach math, we teach biology, somewhere in that they will glean that they need to look at the world through critical thinking. But of course, that's not true at all. So critical thinking is the prism through which you understand biology, you know, history and things like that. And so because it's a way of thinking and not a discrete topic, it often gets overlooked by school administrators who are like, well, we're teaching the basics. We got these, you know, all the check marks are here. Okay, but you're not teaching them how to think. And that that I think is the main the main failing. But there are many. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean that's tricky because it's a you're trying to teach a metacognitive process, right? Like it's it's a very introspective understanding of your own thought processes. And I I think in today's world it would cause a, a huge just to say that you're going to put that in the schools, everybody would assume that it is a very political type of thing that's going on. We're going to teach media literacy and now people, you know, now you have people within certain political groups railing against it and forming packs around uh, around trying to fund the uh, the dissolution of those things. Is there something that you're truly geeking out about right now that uh, that you want to spend a couple of minutes on that's fun to talk about? The the thing that jumps to my mind, and it's just it's something that my mind was spinning off on. And it's, it's it's small, but it's it's recent, which is that there's of course been the the widely touted uh, UFO reports coming out of of Congress, and uh, I've I've seen lots of people on social media and even friends of mine who are like, oh, you know, the government finally admits that UFOs are real. Well, <laughs> if you, if you watch the testimony, that's not what's going on. What's happening is. One guy said that anonymous guys told him <laughs> that UFOs are real. So let's be crystal clear about this. But the part that I really find most interesting is that despite, again, the sort of, you know, bloviating headlines about how the government finally admits that UFO is real, is that it's been a core tenant of UFO research and UFO experts, so-called, for decades that if the public were ever to uh, no, the UFO is real. That is, th that's the whole basis of the conspiracy, right? If you if you ask conspiracy theorists, all right, dude, you're sure that you know there's aliens in Area 51 and and Roswell and that? Why are they covering up? What's what's the end game here? Why why is it so important? Why do you think it's so important that top governments across countries and for decades have all colluded to make sure that people don't know about aliens? One of the common answers is well. If the public knew that aliens were real, the world would end. The people would have this 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 meltdown. They they couldn't handle it. This this would blow their minds. They would curl up and sob or something. Which I I've always thought is complete bullshit. It doesn't make sense from any angle. But here's the thing: if what they're saying is true, and it's not, but if what they were saying was true, this is a great test, right? Because there are many many people online that are saying this is it. Finally, the government has, has broken their silence. They've now admitted that aliens are real. If you accept that premise, then if what, they're, what they've been saying for decades is true, people should be losing their minds, quitting their jobs, uh, going to therapy, and it's not happening. I, this, you might think this is interesting. I, by pure happenstance, spoke with someone recently. I was visiting a friend who works in, uh, in aerospace as a, a government contractor, was called to uh, a military base for a different thing, but it was the place where that guy worked before uh, before all of this happened. And they were telling me a few things. One is that you can classify anything when you have clearance. Uh, you can just classify a document. And something that was pretty common practice, it might be elsewhere, but they were saying here especially was common practice, is to classify things that are not true and hand them out to people as they get hired as sort of a light like hazing thing of like, oh yeah, here's this classified <laughs> report. And like they were telling me that one of the guys was really into D&D &D and so would write these really like elaborate backstories like he was DMing a, a campaign and, you know, like the people would read it and be like, oh, but it was all just kind of an inside joke. And right. so all of the people in this base of them are now theorizing like, OK, is he doing this for the exposure? Did he actually believe these because he worked there for a while? So it seems unrealistic that he would actually have have believed them and not known it was a joke like everyone else. But I, I just I just thought that was interesting because I, I had a chance to sort of stick my nose in that world via my friend who couldn't tell me everything because of security clearance. Sure. Did tell me that much. Fair enough. So, um, Ben, kind of as a, as a last question or a line of thought, you, uh, as I look at your work and have heard you uh, speak on different shows, uh, read a little bit of your stuff or hopefully more than just a little bit of your, of your stuff, it seems like when you um, really evangelize for a skeptical approach to things, you're not doing this maybe the way that some people might personify or or try to make uh, the skeptics view very cartoonish or or polarizing. Um, it seems like you go in with a lot of respect for people who have certain different uh, beliefs or who are reporting things, and you you are very very curious about the way that you do it. Can you talk about that? Because you do seem to be a very you know, like the friendly skeptic in a lot of ways. <laughs> Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, you know, skepticism is, is a big tent. 
And there are lots of people who call themselves skeptics. Oftentimes, they're not skeptics at all. For example, the Ghost Hunters guys. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times I've seen them either in an interview or writing like, well, we're skeptics, are you? But so, you know, pe- people love to, it's the sort of same thing with, you know, the imprimatur of science. Even if they don't genuinely respect science, they know that other people do. So this is mm-hmm. why pseudoscientists and, and ghost hunters, and they all like to sort of, well, we're scientific, even though, of course, that they're not at all. And so, you know, it's interesting, you know, coming from that tradition of, of, of skepticism and, and skeptical inquiry and, and, and for education, right? So you have people like the amazing Randy, uh, the late Randy, who was a colleague of mine. Of course, he, he was around forever. Randy tried to sort of, you know, walk that line. He would debunk people, but, you know, he didn't really embrace the debunker label, and nor do I, because my goal is to investigate. As as a result of that, I often debunk claims, but that's not my, I'm not trying to go into it, trying to say, this is clearly bullshit, let me prove why. And I think part of that goes back to my, my background in psychology, because I am so cognizant of the ways in which people can misunderstand things, misperceive things, fool each other, and just sort of, you know, most people that come to me with their experiences, you know, they saw a ghost, they saw something weird they saw they had some deeply profound experience that they believe was supernatural for else most of them are sincere they're not lying they're not crazy they're not stupid they genuinely believe that and i can tell that and so if i'm going to come to them and and sort of dismiss it like well you know this is crazy you know nobody everybody knows these things aren't real then that's not going to help them at all in one of my books um big if true i begin uh, with a, a a section on a woman that contacted me because she believed that she was cursed and this happened several years ago and i won't go into the whole story but basically she said you know i it was this very heart heart-wrenching email and i i'm certainly it wasn't a hoax i mean it was clear that it was absolutely true or she believed it was true and so i had i was tr- struggling with that right because you know, I don't want to reinforce her idea that she actually is the victim of a curse because it's almost certainly not true. And certainly based on my research and psychology and this and that, at the same time, if I had just emailed her back and said, curses aren't real, get over it, get a life, that's number one, not going to help her out. It's not going to help me out. It's not going to make skeptics look any good. And it's, it's just counterproductive. And so, so to the extent that I can, when I'm doing these investigations, whether it's crop circles or ghosts or psychics or psychic media, we'll take your pick. I try and approach it from uh, you know a, a genuine investigative point of view where you know I'll go into a location and I'll say, look, help me understand what's going on. I'm not here to, to show, the, show you that you're wrong. I'm not here to say you're stupid. I'm here to help us understand what you experienced. And if I can, if I can offer them a plausible alternative explanation for what they experienced in terms of a haunting or whatever else, that helps them out. And they, and they can see that I'm making a sincere effort. So uh, I do try and do that. I am sort of known as one of the more diplomatic skeptics, uh, which I take pride in because I, I think that's how you help people. Yeah. And I, I think even in, in your books, like when you're talking about doing scientific research and the paranormal, you're actually trying to give legitimate, good, actionable advice to that community about here's how you could uplevel your game to potentially gain more credibility to uh, to not just give in to pseudoscience or whatever the, uh, the the fad of the day is for trying to, to find these things. But here's how to apply a scientific process to the thing that you're trying to legitimately look for. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, that's that's always been my approach is, you know, I in what I do, I've spoken to ghost hunting groups, I've spoken to Bigfoot groups. I say, look, I'm not the enemy here. It's like, I may be more skeptical than you are, but we're all trying to solve the mystery. I I, I genuinely am, right? If there's a ghost mm-hmm. somewhere, I want to find that out. If Bigfoot's out there, Chupacabra's out there, believe me, I want to be the front of the line to, to find this out. And and so, you know, that's one of the themes, and I'm glad, Perry, that you recognize that, is, you know, is when I criticize these these groups and these people that aren't doing good research, it's not because I think the topic is too stupid to look at. It's not because I think this is too silly. It's because exactly the opposite, because I do take it seriously, because I'm saying, yes, this is a this topic is worth investigating. It's worth doing good research on. And because of that, do better research. So that's the theme of, you know, I did this book, Investigating Ghosts. And part of it is for ghost hunters to up their game. Say, look, man, if you think ghosts are real, more power to you. Do better research, do better quality research. And if if what you're saying is true, then you'll prove it. But the quality of the research you're doing and the methodologies and research design, it's just it's just so poor that, of course, you're not getting good evidence. 
Thanks so much for listening, and thank you to Ben Radford for spending time with us. Check out our show notes for links to find out more about Ben, as well as his books, his podcast, Squaring the Strange, and more. If you have any questions, feedback, or ideas for a future episode, you can reach us at hello at eighthlayermedia.com. Or if you'd like information about sponsoring an episode, a few episodes, or even an entire season, hit us up. We'd love to hear from you. Digital Folklore is created and produced by Eighth Layer Media. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.